the Apostle Paul, uh, he knew that the Galatian church had gotten its start because of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit was the one he'd been writing in this letter who had birthed the Galatians into God's family in the first place. And then in their early days as Christians, Paul was very conscious of the way the Spirit had operated in their midst. He asked them lots of questions at the beginning of chapter 3 uh, to, to help them remember how the Spirit had worked in them in their early days, especially as a church. But something had happened to the Galatians. Though they'd begun in the Spirit, they had come to a place where they wanted to be perfected by the flesh. They began to think that they could be uh, matured by human effort. And what that led to was um, either a nasty environment or they were on their way to a nasty environment, one that Paul details at the very last verse of our text today, an environment that was filled with conceit, provoking one another, and envying one another. What you're reading there in verse 26 is the results of legalism. That's what happens in a legalistic church or legalistic environment. Uh, com competition becomes the norm. And people begin to, to compete against others, feel superior uh, over and against other people or inferior, in a sense, over and against other people in the body of Christ. Okay, so these self-effort ideas were starting to float around the Galatian church. And so Paul felt it was very important to give them the section of scripture that we're studying right now, that we are looking at today, that we looked at last week, and that we looked at a few weeks ago concerning the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Uh, every Christian, Paul said, is a battleground between uh, the new nature that they've received in Christ, the new nature that the spirit has created or birthed within them, and the remnant of the old nature that every single human on the face of the earth is born with. So he called it a battle or a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And uh, last week we saw Paul detail uh, 15 different elements of the works of the flesh. And we took our time thinking about the different categories that he mentioned there. And today we're going to think about the fruit of the spirit. So the fruit that Paul is going to mention is the outworking of the new nature that the Spirit of God has placed within us, and it grows when we walk in the Spirit, when we are led by the Spirit. That's how we, he began this whole section. In verse 16 and 18, he says, I want you to walk in the Spirit. I want you to be led by the Spirit. And when you do, he said, you won't Fulfill, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The spirit is gonna be working in your life if you walk with God. As we enjoy fellowship with God, the spirit produces growth and transformation that the rules and regulations that the Galatians were turning to could never produce. And that rules and regulations that we turn to today could never produce. The spirit produces a beautiful life. Now, Paul said in verse 23 that the fruit of the spirit is so strong that against such things there is no law. Did you see that there in verse 23? Against these things there is no law. In other words, no law would ever be written to try to restrain the things found in this list. No law would be written to try to restrain love or joy or peace. No legalistic code could ever produce patience or kindness or goodness. 
And no one would ever try to prohibit someone from the kind of faithfulness or gentleness or self-control that the Spirit authors. To Paul, only the Spirit-led life could produce the kind of growth that the Galatians were after. So I want to think about a few things from uh, this little paragraph that Paul gives to us. And one of the first things that I want us to notice in this passage is the method of our growth. That's what we're thinking about today. We're thinking about how is a Christian transformed. If we're not transformed through human effort, if we're not transformed through rules and regulations, how are we transformed? How how does it come? And I want you to think first with me about the method of our growth. What is the method that Paul puts forward in this passage? Well, When Paul wrote about the flesh, he called it the works of the flesh. If you could look back in your Bible into verse 19, the works of the flesh. But here, notice, he doesn't call it the works of the Spirit. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. This is a strategic and intentional word choice from the apostle because those two words, works and fruit, they contrast each other. Uh, The flesh, in other words, is like a factory or like a machine that produces various works. Uh, the, The works of the flesh are meant to conjure up images of the job site or the factory line. Human effort produces those things. But the spirit bears fruit in a person's life, and that really, these elements cannot be uh, fabricated by a human being. Uh, The concept of fruit, in other words, takes us out of the factory and into farm terminology. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, doesn't a farm require a level of human effort? Absolutely, a farm requires a level of human effort. Nobody ever drives by a farm and thinks to themselves that that was just natural. No, there's, there's humans involved in preparing that soil, preparing the ground, and and constructing a farm from a field. But the produce of the field is far different from the byproduct of a factory. I mean, imagine a car factory. You don't have a bunch of workers sitting in a car factory preparing the situation, preparing the environment, and then just waiting with the hopes that a car will appear. No, they realize we have to fabricate. We have to put it together. We have to be the ones to, at the end of the day, produce this machine. But that's not how fruit occurs. The goal of the farmer is to set up the right conditions for natural growth to occur. Now, if this is God's method for true transformation, if it's all about the Spirit producing fruit in us, then I think we have to embrace this method. Uh, We aren't, as Christians, on this grand just-say-no campaign against the works of the flesh. Some of you might have felt that way last week as we looked at all the works of the flesh. You might have just left like, okay, I'm just going to like not do those things. Well, good luck. You need to instead replace those things by walking with the Spirit of God, and he begins to produce these elements in your life. What we're asked to do is to walk in and be led by him, which sets the conditions for his fruitful work to occur in us. A few weeks ago, I talked about how the sailboat requires human engagement, but is powered by the wind. In the same way, the Christian life is powered by the Spirit, but we have to choose to set the conditions for the spirit to work in. Just as the farmer tends the field in an attempt to create an environment for growth, so we must tend our lives 
and fight for good conditions for God's fruit to appear, to become manifest in our lives. In another place, Jesus used a different agricultural metaphor. He said in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. In other words, when we engage in Jesus, when we enjoy Jesus, when we're walking with God, we are soaking in the life of Jesus, and his life flows through us, and fruit comes out of our lives. In other words, it's not just a determination to read about the fruit of the Spirit and say to ourselves, oh, gentleness, that's one that I want to get better at. I'm going to work on it. It might be great to to let your life be inspected by the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit comes as we walk with God, as we press into our relationship with him. The psalmist understood this concept all the way back in Psalm 1 when he said that day and night meditation and delight in God's word would make someone into a fruitful person. He said that like a tree that is next to flowing waters, bearing fruit in its season, is someone who loves and continually meditates on scripture. Constant interaction with the word, in other words, sets the conditions, according to Psalm 1, for God to produce real intangible growth in that person's life. Now, the important thing to remember is that the works of the flesh come naturally to us, but the fruit of the Spirit, it has to be organically grown within us. Now, in saying that, I think we have to acknowledge that we can easily fake the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, We can act really loving or joyful or peaceful. We can seem to other people to be patient or kind or good, at least for a little while. Uh, We can easily portray ourselves as dependable, faithful, tenderhearted, and self-disciplined people. But Paul is not telling us to fake these attributes Uh, for 90 minutes at a church service on a Sunday. He's telling us to walk with God so that the Spirit can grow these realities within us. One time I heard a story of uh, a man who struggled keeping plants alive. And uh, somebody at one point gave him an orchid. And he was just determined, like, I am going to keep this one alive. I'm just, the, I do whatever, whatever the opposite of a green thumb is, that's what I have. So I'm going to, my whole goal is to keep this one orchid alive. So he did a little bit of research and he found something online that said, you know, they don't need that much water. They need about an ice cube worth of water each week. So each week, just put an ice cube in the flower pot, and it will thrive. And for a whole year, he did that. He was faithful, just put an ice cube in the pot, and it you know, was healthy, it was growing, until the day that he inspected the orchid more closely, and he realized that it was a fake orchid that someone had given to him. <laughs> he was so proud of himself. But he realized, I've been maintaining a fake Let it not be so with us. Rather than maintain fake 
character, let us be a people who press into our walk with God and allow him to transform us in a real way. Now, this method of growth that God has chosen, it is gradual, but it is also predictable. It is gradual, but it is also predictable. You know, when an apple grows, it happens slowly over time. You know, to to the naked eye, if you just sat there in front of an apple tree, you can't see the growth taking place. It looks to the naked eye like nothing is happening. But pretty soon, fruit is on the branch. That's how it is with our growth in Christ. Rather than fake immediate fruit, it's better for us to allow the process of time walking with God to produce real and tangible fruit in us. We have to expect our growth to often be slow and imperceptible. But if we continue to feed the Spirit, we will experience moments when we realize we've changed. You know, we all understand this when it comes to physical transformation, right? You know, no one expects radical change to happen after one day of healthy eating or one workout at the gym. You know, we might think that we're on our way to something better, but we're not expecting the next day to have, you know, cut abs or anything like that. We know that that's a process, that it would take time. Change is gradual. Change is slow. Or think of your personal photo stream. You know, we now have so many phones just, or so many uh, photos just right there at a few clicks away in our pockets. And every once in a while, I'll find a, a little moment like, okay, let's look at some photos. And, and sometimes my photo streaming service will remind me of something, you know, like here was something that happened five years ago or 10 years ago. And have you ever had that experience where you're just shocked by how different you look? You're like, whoa, I looked better back then. <laughs> the change, you didn't see it happening day by day, but it was over time occurring. That's how it is with the Spirit. Going to church, reading the Bible, confessing your sins to your brothers or sisters in Christ, spending time in prayer, being alone with God, expressing or living out the spiritual disciplines, serving others, As you engage in these things, it's hard to feel in the moment the kind of transformation that God is producing, but he is definitely producing it in your life. You're setting the conditions, and the Spirit is at work. Why is this growth predictable, though? It might be slow. Why is it predictable? Well, because it's promised. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh, Paul said. This fruit of the Spirit will grow from your life, and there's no mystery at all as to what the Spirit is going to produce in your life. Apple seeds produce apples, orange seeds produce oranges, fruit bears according to its kind, and the Spirit produces the same thing every time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the Spirit produces every time in a person's life. It's a seed that cannot be stopped. Its growth is inevitable when we walk with God. Now, I cannot express enough how important knowing and embracing this method for growth is to the Christian life. We have to be fully confident that Christianity is not a try-hard message, but a walk-with-God message. 
And as we walk in and are led by his spirit, transformation comes. We're not a factory that produces good works, but a farm that grows good character. Okay, so that's the first big thing I wanted us to think about today is the method of our growth. Okay, but the second thing that I wanted us to notice in this passage is the balance of our growth, the balance of our growth. And what I mean by that is, and this could escape us as we're reading the Bible in English, we might think of this list as the fruits of the Spirit, that they're all individual. Uh, But the Greek that Paul wrote with is very clear. He could have uh, spoken of fruits of the Spirit, but he chose to speak in the singular. This is the fruit of the Spirit, and it manifests itself in all these different ways. Uh, the love and joy and so on. And what this suggests is that these various elements, these nine different words that Paul uses to describe the fruit of the Spirit, they are interconnected. There's one fruit of the Spirit, and it looks like all of these elements together. Now, now why is that important? One reason why it's important is because what this helps us understand is that when you come to this passage about the fruit of the Spirit, you are not reading a Pauline personality profile test. Okay, he's not saying, you know, some people are gentle, some people are loving, some people are kind, some people are faithful, some people have self-control. He's saying this is what the Spirit produces in God's people. Uh, If it were a personality profile test, Uh, then we could come to this list and we could discover areas that we are naturally strong. You know, we we might have the natural strengths that actually aren't fruits of the Spirit. So we we all know people who are naturally happy, naturally bubbly in personality, and you might come to this list and say, oh, joyful. They have that part of the fruit of the Spirit. They are joyful. Uh, We all know people with a strong moral compass, You know, they want to do what is right. They're internally driven. When no one is watching, they want to do the right thing. And you might say that they are good. Uh, We all know people who are subdued and speak calmly. And we might say they're gentle. but But natural temperament should not be confused with the work of the Spirit. The sign that it's the Spirit authoring various elements in a person's character is that, listen to this, the other elements will also be found. Uh, In other words, when the Spirit is working in someone's life, they won't be patient, but also lacking self-control in any significant way. You know, able to put up with a lot, but no self-discipline whatsoever. Uh, They won't appear to be loving, but at the same time lack a moral backbone, goodness. Uh, They won't seem gentle, but also, at the same time, lack a deep-seated joy. When the Spirit is at work, each element of his fruit is produced in balance. Think of a way a balloon fills up with air. You know, if I were to inflate a balloon right here on the stage this morning, you would see it filling up symmetrically, right? It would start small, but it would grow bigger and bigger. There wouldn't be like a pocket of the balloon that gets some of the air while the other part of the balloon is Uh, yet to be inflated. No, it would grow, it would expand in a symmetrical way. Uh, The Spirit does the same thing in us. 
steadily working out all the facets of his fruit in our lives as we walk with him. Some of us might have natural strengths that look like some of these fruits. Uh, For example, I have a degree of just like natural self-discipline, but that doesn't mean that we're well-rounded. Only by the Spirit can we become what Paul described here. And uh, this fruit that he describes, I don't know how else to say it, it's just beautiful. If you just look at the list that he gives to us, it's a beautiful person. I mean, don't you want to be friends with someone like this? I mean, this is an amazing person. Uh, he, he, he categorized, and I, I think the way that Paul, I think, I think he's kind of organizing these nine words in three categories. And the first category, the first three words, uh, deals with the inner person, love, joy, and peace. So let's think about those. What, what is love? Well, love is appropriate to come first because in the New Testament, it's the king attribute, isn't it? You know, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. So love is the king attribute. Before he died, Jesus told his disciples, everybody will know that you're my disciples because of your what? Your love for one another. So love is massive when it comes to the work that God is doing in our lives. It's a foundational virtue. It's not just a feeling. I feel that I love you, but it's an action of self-sacrifice for others. It's better than attraction or affection because it serves others not for what it can get from them, but for their good. Now, Jesus is the perfect example of all of these attributes, and we, of course, know that Jesus is incredibly loving. He loved us so much that he bore our burdens so that we might know God when he died on the cross. Incredible sacrifice, incredible love. So what the Spirit is producing us is basically the life of Jesus. And so the Spirit is producing or trying to produce that same sacrificial love for the betterment of others that was found in Jesus. Okay, the second thing Paul pointed out was joy. Joy flows from the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Joy delights in God for the sheer beauty of who he is. Joy is not hopeless. Joy is not despairing. But joy is optimistic and confident in God. Joy is a deep inner rejoicing that does not depend on circumstances. Now, Jesus, of course, had incredible joy. Uh, Even though he was going to the cross to endure the agony of the cross, Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured that suffering, the joy of being reunited with his Father in heaven, the joy of gaining many sons and daughters because of what he had done. That was the joy that he had within his heart heart. And the Spirit produces that same joy in us, the joy of the simple pleasure of knowing God. And then Paul talked about peace. Uh, peace is uh, rest with God. It flows into every other relationship that this person is in. Anxiety and worry are cast out when peace rushes in. Uh, this person cares greatly about a lot of things that it d- Peace doesn't mean they're indifferent or apathetic, but they're inwardly calm and quiet. Just as Jesus had peace in the midst of massive, uh, the massive war that he fought against darkness and death and sin, the Spirit generates peace in us for our mission. 
Okay, after dealing with our inner person, Paul then gave a second uh, set of categories or second set of attributes where he described how the fruit of the Spirit impacts our interactions with other people. Uh, one of the first things he mentioned or the first thing he mentioned in this category is patience. The Spirit produces patience in us. Now, this is not natural patience. Uh, like, have you ever seen a, like a golden retriever that has just been so pummeled by the family toddler for so long that it just endures anything, you know, like it's being ridden like a horse and it's just happy to have it happen to him. Uh, that's not the kind of patience that the Spirit produces. This is Spirit-engineered change. We become able to endure trials and difficulties better than we could before. Like, like someone who goes, does one of those uh, from, from the couch to a 5K programs where they had no endurance before. They were just a couch potato. And then their endurance builds. The Spirit produces that in us. Now, Jesus, of course, had incredible endurance. Uh, he faced the extreme hardship of the cross without resentment towards God or resentment towards people. And the Spirit puts that kind of patience within us. He also talked about kindness. Now, kindness is not just a, a glossy veneer of kindness, but it's a manifestation of love that actively shows compassion to other people, concern for other people, especially this word is used concerning being kind to people who are less fortunate than you. Uh, but it's not charity that's done uh, out of the overflow of life, like I'm doing so well, I got a little extra and I'll be charitable with it. No, it's a sacrificial kind of kindness. It's a kindness that leaves us vulnerable. That's how Jesus was kind. Jesus risked everything to be kind to us and the spirit produces that same kind of kindness in our lives to others. And then he talked about goodness also there in verse 22. Goodness is more than mere kindness but includes a moral excellence and integrity in a person. So uh, if you've ever said, like, ah, he's just a good guy, that's not what this is about. This is a, this is a morality that is, uh, that is beautiful in this person's life. Uh, whether other people deserve it or not, this person treats everyone well. Just as Jesus was good to everyone and lived a life of moral beauty, so the Spirit enables us to treat others well while we maintain holiness. And then the, the final group of three words that Paul used uh, gets into our self-behavior. First, our inner attitudes, then our interactions with others, now our self-behavior. And uh, this category begins with the word faithfulness. Now, a faithful person, they're loyal, they're committed. When they say yes, it means yes. When they say no, it means no. They keep their commitments. They're trustworthy. They're true to their word. Just as Jesus could never be dissuaded from honoring his father, the faithful person uh, who the spirit has changed uh, is uh, always consistent in obeying God, despite spiritual or external or internal pressures that they're under. Uh, the spirit also produces gentleness. Again, this is not a natural temperament, but something that the spirit produces in a person's life. This person is so in control uh, that they are angry at the right times and they're not angry at the wrong times. They are tenderhearted towards and considerate of others. They're not self-superior. They're not self-absorbed. Just as Jesus 
who was always the greatest person in every room that he walked into, was ever focused on everyone else, so the Spirit produces a radical others-centeredness in us. I think that's what this gentleness is about. And finally, uh, Paul said that the Spirit produces self-control at the, in uh, verse 23. Uh, this person is not self-disciplined because they uh, are, have a need to control their life or control their environment. That's a version of self-discipline. This person is self-controlled so that they can bring themselves under the mastery of God, so that they can do everything that God wants for their lives. They're not led by the winds of their emotions, but submit every part of themselves to the deeper emotions and desires of God's spirit. Uh, Just as Jesus prayed in the garden for God's will to be accomplished and and through his life, so the spirit causes a self-controlled person to say, not as I will, but as God will wills. Now, I know it's a lot to consider of all nine of those things in order and in sequence like that, but I think we should respond at the end of a list like that by saying what an incredible life that would be. What beauty and majesty that life would have. What transcendence. And uh, what I don't want to have happen is for us to let the mountaintop of the character that is described here in Galatians Uh, discourage you from walking with the Lord. Too many times in in modern Christianity, the bar has been set so low for us as Christians. But God, who is the Spirit, he has a glorious vision for what we can become by his power. We've got to let his fruit search our hearts. I mean, just just a reminder for you in case you're, you know, the enemy is like, lying to you right now, I've got to remind you, this is not a salvific list. This is not, oh, I want to be a Christian. I do these things and God accepts me. As a believer in Jesus, you are accepted just as the only begotten son is accepted before the father. But this is what the spirit of God looking at you, now living inside of you, the one who birthed you into God's family, he's looking at you and he's saying, I could bring you into this. I could bring you into this life. I could produce this in your life. And so we should crave, desire, long for this list. So let's ask questions of it. Do do I love selflessly as Christ did or am I self-absorbed? Do I have inner immovable joy in God or am I heavily impacted by the events of the day? Am I at peace before God, or do I constantly give in to worry? Do I patiently endure the difficulties of life well, or am I easily jostled? Do I extend practical and real kindness to those around me, or am I hoarding my time and my resources for myself? Do I live a good life of moral beauty, or do I feel morally superior to other people? Do I faithfully keep my commitments and word, or am I untrustworthy and undependable? Do I gently uh, serve others or am I hostile towards others? Do I have a self-discipline to follow God or am I overrun by impulses that keep me from experiencing him? Again, these questions aren't designed to produce self-effort, a try-harder message, but to put a desire within us to put up our sails to catch the Spirit's wind. 
I have items on my prayer list each morning that are just Nate deficiencies. You know, there's just like these things that I'm asking God, God, would you help me today with this? Would you strengthen me in this area? I want to see you grow and transform my life. I want to be these things. And as we consider these, and as that vision grows within us, and as we walk with God, these things can occur. You know, I've seen, seen lots of sunsets here on the Monterey uh, Peninsula. I've probably seen thousands of sunsets. I grew up here. Uh, but there have been a lot of times where I've gone down to the coast to watch the sunset at the end of the day, uh, only to miss it because the entire coast was engulfed in fog. You know, you're like, oh, let's go watch the sunset. You get down there, and it's just engulfed. In... I was just wondering this morning, because I, I looked outside, I saw the weather, and I thought to myself, I wonder how many times I've uttered the words, it'll burn off. <laughs> it's just how it is here. Uh, When that's occurring, the sunset is still happening. It's beautiful for someone somewhere. It's just that the fog has kept you in that moment from seeing it. And if the Christian life is boring to you, perhaps it's because this destination of the fruit of the Spirit has disappeared or has been fogged over in your mind's eye. Let this picture in Galatians recapture your imagination, in other words, of what God is trying to produce in you. Okay, let's wrap it up by considering the last few verses, which are basically a recap of Paul's entire teaching on the flesh and the spirit. He says in verse 24 and 25, we already kind of considered verse 26, he says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So what have we thought about today? We've thought about the method of our growth. We've thought about the balance of our growth. But here, Paul takes us back to the foundation of our growth. He reminds us that the fruit of the Spirit is not even possible until we, verse 24, belong to Jesus Christ. Without a new nature, without conversion, none of this is possible. It can be faked, but it won't be real. If the Spirit produces fruit that looks like Jesus in our lives, then Jesus must be rooted deep within us. We must belong to Christ Jesus. Uh, But then he also tells us how this transformation occurs. He says, when we first trusted the gospel of Christ, we died with Christ. So in the eyes of God, we have already, he says in verse 24, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is probably a nudge from Paul the apostle saying, if we positionally been crucified with Christ Jesus, let's continue to crucify the flesh with and by the Spirit of Jesus. And finally, Paul tells us that since we are alive by the Spirit, in verse 25, the one who regenerated us and birthed us into God's family, we should also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, growth comes when we feed the Spirit. So what's the foundation of our growth? First, our identity. We belong to Jesus. That's step one. You've got to believe the gospel, belong to Jesus. Second, our continued commitment to growth. Uh, We want to kill the flesh is the Pauline 
terminology. And if I'm being honest or frank, this, is, this second step is where I think a lot of believers just decide, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm gonna live with the flesh. I'm gonna allow it to flourish, but we've got to have that ongoing commitment. Let's kill the flesh, all right? So I don't wanna like start a rally cry or something like that, but feeling that this morning, let's, let's commit to that. Let's kill the flesh. And third, we feed the spirit. We wanna put up our sails to catch the wind of his power to carry us along into Christ-likeness. And when this occurs in our lives, beautiful fruit comes out of our lives. When Jacob was dying in the book of Genesis, he gathered all his sons and he pronounced really blessings or words of prophecy over all of them. And when he came to his son Joseph, the one that they'd sold into slavery, who went ahead of them, prepared the way, and got Egypt organized for a massive harvest for a number of years. When he came to Joseph, he said, he's like a vine whose branches run over the wall. It's kind of his way of saying, this young man, because of his walk with God, because of his devotion to God, his life became so fruitful and abundant that people who are walking along on the outside of the vineyard, along the wall, they can partake of his fruit. Uh, they're able to eat and be nourished because he's so overflowed with fruitfulness in life. And when I read this list, I just think, a person like this, they are a blessing to thousands of people. So let's be a people who continue to walk by the Spirit so that we can also have fruit that runs over the wall. Amen? Lord, we come to you today. We thank you for this beautiful fruit of the Spirit, and we ask, Lord, that you'd produce it in our lives. We pray that you'd grow us. Thank you, Lord, for your slow and complete patience to take us through that lifelong process of producing more and more of this fruit within us. We pray for it, Lord. We ask that you would help us. Whatever our background, whatever our past experiences, whatever uh, traumas we've endured, whatever difficulties we've faced, we pray, Lord, that as we walk with you by your Spirit, you would produce the character of Christ in us. We thank you, Lord. We commit our lives into your hands, and we pray that you'd help us. These Galatians wanted to be perfect by works. We pray, Lord, that you would grow us as we walk in you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.